This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. In one of our segments today, I'm not sure which, we're going to revisit our chat with actor Norman Lloyd. The legendary Mr. Lloyd was a contemporary and co-worker of Orson Welles, a personal friend of Charlie Chaplin, and a both actor and director for Alfred Hitchcock. He graciously spoke with us at length from the Musso Frank restaurant in Hollywood, and we're going to excerpt a bit of that uh, later in today's program. A man's got some stories. Let's begin today's program as we like to do with On This Date in History, our date in question being the 7th of July. On July 7th in 1815, with French General Napoleon Bonaparte defeated at Waterloo, the victorious Allies marched into Paris. On July 7th in 1846, Commander J.D. Sloat of the U.S. Navy raises the American flag in Monterey, annexing California after the surrender of a Mexican garrison there. Mexico's giving up of California became official with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which ended our very unfair war with Mexico. And that's not just my opinion. That was the opinion of Ulysses S. Grant, who fought in that war. And by the way, I should point out, U.S. Grant's opinion, like all those heard on this program, do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors of the regions of the University of California. All of whom agree that while Grant may not have been the best president ever, he looks damn good on the $50 bill. And what is a red-letter day for model aircraft devotees, it was on July 7th in 1920 that a U.S. naval seaplane flew 95 miles guided exclusively by radio signals. This was the first time an airplane relied on radio signals to navigate. And, although it's hard to believe, it was 19 years ago, on July 7th in 1992, that the comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 was torn into at least 23 pieces by Jupiter's gravitational forces. Or at least that's when Carolyn Shoemaker and David Levy figured it out. The eventual collision of the pieces into Jupiter was an event never directly observed previously. The actual collision was two years later. Anticipating something very cool, this correspondent bought a ticket to LAX, rented a car, and drove over to Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena about the time the first images came in. That was some pretty cool stuff. It also inspired people on Earth to say, hey, what if we get clobbered with something like that? Shouldn't we be looking? This led to the surveys of near space, which have subsequently located thousands of objects which uh, are kind of in our general vicinity, but uh, thankfully so far, none in danger of hitting the home planet. Although we keep having a few close shaves. Actually, there was one small object that they did realize was going to hit the Earth, like tomorrow. And they were able to predict that, yes, it's going to smash the Earth uh, over Sudan, which it did. They even have gone and scooped up pieces of it. Our quote of the day comes from author Robert Block, who said, The man who can smile when things go wrong has thought of someone else he can blame it on. Our quip of the day comes from author Stephen Ambrose, who said, God created man with a brain and a penis, but only gave him enough blood to run one at a time. Our joke of the day comes from the Dave Barry calendar. Dave noted some time back that when we bought our house, we had to sign bales of incomprehensible legal documents. We'd actually been signing documents for a couple of months dating back to when we made our first offer on the house. 
our real estate agent had us sign an official warning from the state of Florida informing us that if we purchase this house, we should not eat the paint. We also signed a document concerning radon gas. I can't remember much about that one except that radon gas is colorless and odorless, and the state of Florida wanted us as home buyers to be nervous about it. All right, our statistic of the day, and in uh, the eight or nine years we've been doing this show, we've never had a stat quite like this one. This, is, this one's quite appropriate for summer, which is now creeping up on us. I should clarify, this one comes actually from Snopes.com, the well-respected debunking site, which in response to the claim that outdoor temperatures can be determined by counting the chirps made by crickets, rated its status as true. Now, back in 1897, physicist Amos Dolbear proposed a reverse of the temperature uh, measurement by cricket idea by stating that outdoor temperatures would determine the number of cricket calls that one would hear, which makes sense. When it gets cold enough, the crickets, crickets don't chirp at all. But people have looked for years at a formula for how to count the chirps and determine the temperature. Snopes.com notes that uh, they've encountered a number of uh, cricket chirp thermometer formulas over the years. One specifies counting the chirps over a 40-second interval, then adding 38. Another says it's chirps over 14 seconds and then add 38, which frankly makes me question the people at Snopes.com because how can you add 38 to either a 40-second or 14-second interval and get the temperature? Snopes quoted the Old Farmer's Almanac, who we also quote from frequently, claiming that if you take the number of chirps in 14 seconds and add 40, that'll get you close. Thankfully, someone did an experiment on this, which was Dr. Peggy Lamond of the GLOBE program, which is a science education program funded by NASA, and uh, studied crickets in the summer of 2007 to see if she could derive the right formula. Her finding was... Chirps in 13 seconds plus 40 gives you the approximate answer, which is pretty darn close to the old farmer's almanac's uh, chirps in 14 seconds plus 40. So give it a try. See how you do. Send us an email. That's what we say. Of course, pay attention that you're only hearing one cricket. And I have to admit, I'm skeptical of this statistic because (laughs) different crickets must chirp at different rates, different species, I mean, wouldn't you think? Or the crickets would get confused. Anyway, I know that a lot of you out there are interested in the sciences, dear listener, and so what better way to advance modern science than to over the summer that we're having here in California, over this summer, let's see if we can corroborate this cricket thermometer data. I'm also disturbed by the fact that, you know, on a hot night, it seems to me that the various crickets around are chirping at slightly different rates. That can't be good for this theory. But by God, you don't know till you try. So let, let's try, shall we? In fact, let's mark the calendar, Mr. McMillan. Let's revisit this two months from now in our first program in September. All right. Personally, I'm going to start with the 13 seconds plus 40 rule and see where that gets me. All right, let's see if we can't jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week a few weeks back for starting early after Matt and Ellie Green of White House, Texas, 
made a Facebook profile for their daughter Mariah, even though she's yet to be born. Mariah, who already has 268 friends, and we don't know how many of those are prenatal, most of her time, according to her profile, swimming. It was, conversely, a bad week for Germany, after a poll of 30,000 people by the social networking site Badoo.com named Germans the least funny nationality. Also deemed not very amusing were Russians and Turks. Oddly enough, rated most hilarious, the Portuguese. Actually, I'm kidding. Nobody was rated apparently most amusing. But I'd have to put my money if they were going to make that call on the Jews. This correspondent has done extensive research, hanging out with various nationalities and ethnicities. And it is my considered opinion that the Jewish people have to be rated the world's most amusing. And finally, it was an ugly week some months back for marriage counseling in the wake of the following advice from Sting. Yeah, a while back he was quoted by Laura Brown in Harper's Bazaar as saying there's no mystery about why his marriage works. It's the sex. Said the musician, we like tawdry. I don't think pedestrian sex is very interesting. There's a playfulness we have. I like the theater of sex. I like her to dress up. It was noted that the 59-year-old singer's 18-year marriage to film producer Trudy Styler, age 57, is an anomaly in the celebrity world since they've been together for nearly 30 years and have six children, including two from Sting's previous marriage. And it was noted that the fact that they stay incredibly fit because of yoga does help. But I'm not sure I get the part about where they claim that his frequent absences because of touring assist their marriage. Sting said, being a pot juices the relationship. We don't get bored. Relationships aren't easy, and I don't think they're particularly natural. But we're lucky because we actually like each other. We love each other. That's a given. But Trudy lights my world up when she comes into a room. I don't take her for granted. I could lose her, but he'd have to be very rich and very handsome. And Radio Parallax might add, and perhaps very stuck up. All right, from the Only in Japan file, we have the fact that... Uh, the recent sumo match-fixing scandal has been called a betrayal of the people by Japan's prime minister. Yes, this story is a couple months old, but we're just getting around to it. Apparently, the 2,000-year-old sport struggled in February to stem mounting damage. Sumo has been consumed by scandal in recent years, including allegations of drugs, fighting in nightclubs, <laughs> like, who takes on a sumo wrestler? and violent bullying of apprentices. Apparently, the latest disgrace follows a police investigation into sumo wrestlers who gambled illegally on other sports. But, worse, evidence obtained in that investigation indicated that sumo matches had frequently been fixed. Three wrestlers have admitted throwing matches, and 11 more are implicated. Mr. McMillan, what do you got for this one? And from our letters department, we want to thank Millie for sending us an oldie but a goodie. It did make the rounds a few years ago, but I don't think we got around to it here on Radio Parallax. 
But apparently in the wake of Dr. Laura Schlesinger noting, as an observant Orthodox Jew on her radio program, that homosexuality is an abomination according to Leviticus 8.22 and cannot be condoned under any circumstances, someone sent an open letter, which we'll excerpt from. Dear Dr. Laura, thank you for doing so much to educate people regarding God's law. When someone tries to defend the homosexual lifestyle, for example, I simply remind them that Leviticus 8.22 clearly states it to be an abomination. End of debate. I do need some advice from you, however, regarding some other elements of God's law and how to follow them. For example, Leviticus 25.44 states that I may possess slaves, both male and female, provided they are purchased from neighboring nations. A friend of mine claims this applies only to Mexicans. Can you clarify... Why can't I own Canadians? Or, I would like to sell my daughter into slavery, as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. In this day and age, what do you think would be a fair price for her? Or, I know from Leviticus 11.6-8 that touching the skin of a dead pig makes me unclean. But, may I still play football if I wear gloves? And finally, my uncle has a farm. He violates Leviticus 19.19 by planting two different crops in the same field, as does his wife by wearing garments made of two different kinds of thread, in this case a cotton polyester blend. He also tends to curse and blaspheme a lot. Is it really necessary that we go to all the trouble of getting together the whole town to stone them, per Leviticus 24.10-16? Couldn't we just burn them to death at a private family affair like we do people who sleep with their in-laws, according to... Leviticus 2014. Well, those are some darn good questions, but regretfully we don't have any of the answers that came from Dr. Laura Schlesinger, who I understand is no longer on the air, which frankly seems just too good to be true. Could we check on that, Mr. McMillan? Yes. And we mentioned some uh, weeks back we were going to say something about the effort in Saudi Arabia to get women to drive. And I guess the thing that Maybe jumps out for commentary is the fact that only 29 women took to the streets in Saudi Arabia to defy the government's unwritten law against women driving. But I guess that's how these things uh, get started. Apparently, writing in Saudi Arabia's Arab News, one correspondent noted that it was actually in the state's interest to put women behind the wheel. Adding that one of my readers, this is the guy writing in, in Saudi Arabia, One of my readers pointed out the environmental impact of employing about one million men, almost all of them foreigners, as drivers for our women. That's a million extra people consuming water and electricity simply to perform a task that Saudi women could easily do themselves. Caused uh, someone writing in Egypt's Ashark al-Aswat to say that eventually the Saudi Arabian state will see reason. Well, maybe so. Maybe about the time the U.S. sees reason in our Cuba Embargo being rescinded, which uh, still hasn't knocked the Castro brothers out of power. The Economist took a look at the situation in Saudi Arabia, noting that uh, the young people there are growing restless and impertinent. And there's some signing petitions calling for rights and a constitution. By the way, did you ever think about the fact that Saudi Arabia is the only country I, I can think of that's named after the ruling family? The region's been known for thousands of years as Arabia, but it was the House of Saud taking power in the 20th century that caused the nation to be named after the royal family. But the Economist notes that trouble may be brewing in the kingdom. King Abdullah is 89 and a week. Crown Prince Sultan, his anointed successor, is 87. 
He's ailing also. Next in line, Prince Nayef, the feared interior minister, is 78 and badly diabetic. Doesn't look good at the top, but the magazine notes that subtle changes are afoot. There's an increasingly irreverent, subversive tone that infuses chats in the thriving Saudi ether via text messages, which they think notes a, uh, a growing gap between the elderly princes and an increasingly cosmopolitan populace. Well, we, we shall see. And a story which could have been predicted, and in fact was predicted on Radio Parallax. We have confirmation via an article in Scientific American about the growing menace from superweeds. As we predicted, as anybody could have predicted, based on basic biology, the use of uh, things like Roundup Ready from Monsanto for seeds would escape into wild-related plants and breed superweeds. Well, it's, it's now happening. article notes that uh, the ragweed family is a nasty bunch of weeds that suck up water and spew out highly allergenic pollen. They speculate that if farmers stopped farming, it wouldn't take more than a few years for parts of Indiana to, <laughs> to live up to the nickname that agronomist joke should appear in the license plate of the state, Giant Ragweed National Forest. But uh, glyphosate, or uh, Roundup, has taken center stage in a drama in which the killer weed is the protagonist. article quoted Doug Gurian Sherman saying, I wouldn't use the word catastrophe, but there are people saying it could be the worst thing for cotton farmers since the boll weevil. Apparently super weeds... In the past decade, have expanded their range in U.S. farms from a few scattered occurrences to as much as 11 million acres. Notes the article. If super weeds do rise to the level of a catastrophe, it'll be one that could not only have been predicted, but that was also foreseen. Yeah, duh. Like the antibiotic-resistant bacteria that have infectious disease specialists fearing the worst, it is a problem we have brought upon ourselves. By putting a resistance to Roundup in certain crops and then just spraying the hell out of everything, the idea was this was a cheap way to just uh, control weeds. Kill everything because your crop is resistant. Well, unfortunately, those genes for resistance have escaped, as it was predicted that they would, and are now actually uh, making their way into different weed species because we've learned in the past a couple of decades in science that uh, genes jumping from one species to another is more common than we realized. In fact, at this point, there's about 10 weed species in the U.S. and about an equal number in the rest of the world which have evolved the ability to withstand an ordinarily lethal dose of Roundup. Of course, a Monsanto spokesman uh, has quickly pointed out that uh, that leaves more than 300 species that are still vulnerable to Roundup. Well, at least for now, anyway. But the Scientific American article points out that 10 do include some of the most prolific and intractable pests that infest our fields, including giant and common ragweed, horseweed, Johnson grass, water hemp, and Palmer amaranth, also known as pigweed, which I guarantee you have in your yard. In fact, in some places now where this resistant pigweed has taken hold, cotton growers have abandoned their fields. And of course, our stupid farming methods have a lot to do with this. The article notes that glyphosate resistance was almost unknown in the years before Roundup, but since then it's appeared in new species of weeds at the rate of about one per year, and it's applying the same herbicide to the same crop year in and year out with no other weed control measures that creates the perfect laboratory for the evolution of resistance. We will continue to follow this story. 
But let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We got lots of stuff to talk about. Don't go away. Just give me that countryside.